welcome to all of you to RMIT, those who have not been here before or not been here for a long time because there's some alumni in the audience and we're very, very pleased to see you and very pleased to see our current students as well. Um, I'm Alex Waite, for those of you who don't know me, but most of you do. We're talking today on the topic of man's turf or bloke's turf, why women still struggle in the coverage of Australian sport. And this conversation came about because of one night um, a few of us on the panel started ranting <laughs> about uh, women in sport and the coverage of women's sport. And we thought it was time to have a public conversation about, about that. There are other people tonight who've actually, who can't be here who have requested for this to be live um, streamed. So it is actually being recorded and it will be posted up on uh, the internet so other people will be able to hear it at a later date. Um, as you can and I'm sure that you will listen to it many times over because it's going to be so illuminating. And the only reason it's going to be illuminating is because of who we have here today. And I'm really so very pleased that everyone can join us. This is Jill Scanlon, and she's going to be talking about why won't the media companies take a risk on women's sport. Jill and I have uh, worked together at Radio Australia over many years, but she is a blues fan and a sports lover. She's a sports advocate, a producer, a journalist, a news follower. She's insane to have returned to part-time study. She's doing a Master's of International Community Development and she was formerly with the ABC um, with a few of us who are here on the panel today. The next is Heather Jarvis, who is our colleague from Melbourne University. She's going to be talking about lesser coverage, fewer opportunities, the relationship between female participation and media coverage in women's sport. Again, another former um, ABC colleague, not only is a lecturer at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at uh, the University of Melbourne, she is an award-winning high jumper <laughs> and an all-round girl. Um, <laughs> Dr. Naja Barfin from Monash University, formerly from RMIT, is talking about race and gender in football and um, in football and footy. I must um, not mix up my codes. She is a senior lecturer in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash Uni. She was a community ambassador with the 2015 Asia Cup and the AFL Multicultural Programs. And thanks to her, I got to see Saudi versus Uzbekistan and Saudi versus, <laughs> and, um, Saudi versus North Korea. Not sure. <laughs> not sure who to support in those, but anyway, we had fun. Next is Julie um, Tolberg from Monash University. Welcome. Footy, change rooms, blokey press boxes and the back page girl. She might be at Monash now, but she's done the hard yards in the newsroom. Julie teaches digital journalism and sports reporting at Monash's University School of Film, Media, Film and Journalism. She's doing a PhD in sports and digital journalism and she's worked as a journalist since the 1990s. She's done a lot of time on the Herald Sun's homepage and as the sports digital editor at nights. Natalie Yoandinas, who is RMIT alumni, she won the um, ABC Sport in um, Cadetship, Sport Cadetship. She is now with Fox Sport. She's flown down from Sydney to be with us tonight. I'm delighted to have here with us on the panel. She's talking about being one of the boys. Uh, she was one of our top students at RMIT and we could not be more proud of her now. And David Loden, 
from our friends out at La Trobe, who's gotten off a plane tonight to come in to join us. He's talking about the media coverage of female athletes would improve if there was no women's sport. And I think he's very brave to be on a panel with all of us women. Um, and I'm so glad that you agreed to come and join us tonight. He's going to speak last, seeing he's outnumbered. We're going to give him the last spot. He's a senior lecturer in broadcast in the Bachelor of Journalism Sport. He coordinates that. He joined La Trobe in 2010 after a media career that began as a general news cadet in 1989. During his career, he's been a TV reporter, presenter, live sports producer, chief of staff, and ultimately an executive producer. But you don't want to hear from me because I'm rather like Tim Mitchin. I don't know if you saw what he said recently to a graduation ceremony in, in Western Australia, but he said that arts graduates, like myself, had it wrong in terms of you know walking around and reading poetry and that we really needed to learn to run. I missed that piece of advice at university <laughs> and I'm going to hand it over to people who obviously got that advice and have run with it. So first of all, Jill Scanlon. I'm just standing the dais for a bit of security here. <laughs> right, my topic, why won't media companies take a risk on women's sport? Just Do I need that? Yeah, just for the video recording. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Extra hand. <laughs> okay, so why won't media companies take a risk on women's sport? Well, I'm afraid I don't have a specific answer for you. Rather than leaving it at that, let's explore the possible explanations. What is it that media produces? It produces information, it disseminates content. Now, the media, for the most part, is made up of businesses, like any other industry that is commercial in nature, it needs to be viable, and even more so, it needs to be profitable. So, financial support, money, comes from advertisers, those with a vested interest. There's lots of sport out there, there are lots of stories, good stories, to be told. But who decides which ones will get the space? Which ones will be seen by the readers, or the listeners, or the viewers? The editor? The chief editor, the senior manager, or further up the ladder, and maybe later on David can tell us about that, given he's been in those roles, some of those roles. This decision about whoever, whoever makes this decision is based on what? It's based on personal preference for a particular sport? Is it based on the level of popularity for that sport among the readership or the audience? The preference or dictate of the group that is financially supporting the publication, which brings with it its own set of ethical dilemmas, as we all know. Or is it based on a sense of fairness and equity in apportioning out coverage and exposure for all sports? Well, I'm sure we'd like to think it's the last one, but in all honesty, it's most likely a combination of all of them and probably the last one, the least of all. Notice that at no point in there did I mention gender as a factor, and yet it seems to be a major factor. So do we believe this to be about misogyny? Do we believe it to be about disinterest by the editors or a straight business decision based on what they think they will sell? Again, it probably is a mixture of all of these. One argument that's put forward by those in charge of deciding what to publish with regard to women's sport is that there's not a lot of it around. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just rubbish. It's just total rubbish. Australia has a plethora of women's sports being played all, at all levels, from community-based to elite national representation and, yes, even at a professional level. Let's quickly have a look at women's sport in Australia. We have basketball, we have the WNBL, which is our national domestic competition. The Opals are our national representatives. We have netball, as the ANZ Championships have just started, that's our national domestic competition. Never ever short of a crowd at the national netball. The Diamonds are our national representatives and there is a World Cup on in netball this year. 
here in Australia, being hosted here in Australia. Football, we have the W League and nationally, internationally representation by the Matildas. We have everything. We have rugby, the Wallaroos in the 15s and the Rugby Sevens women's team that are doing very well. Just this morning, there was a press release put out by the ARU that Rugby WA announced a new women's rugby development program that is about to get underway. Now, WA is not a heartland of rugby, but they are pushing very hard to have a new women's program going there full on. We have, I could go on, we have rugby league, cricket, water polo, hockey, AFL, very strong in the Victorian League and in the other southern state leagues. We have tennis, athletics, cycling, triathlon, surfing, skiing, swimming, rowing, canoeing, sailing, squash, bowls, you name it, we play it. And most of all, we play it at an international level and we play it to a high degree of success. My point in listing these sports is that there is no shortage of stories or content, news content, which couldn't be covered. It's all there for the taking in terms of content, so why? Why do the mainstream media turn a blind eye to it? Think of the massive media coverage around the Socceroos' success in winning, being in the Asian Cup final and winning it just last month. Never been done, groundbreaking for Australian football. Well, I'm sorry, but the Matildas reached the Asian Cup final last year. They didn't win it, but many of, do we, how many of us remember seeing pages full of pictorials that featured Katrina Gorry, Caitlin Ford or Claire Polkingmore? Gorry was awarded the 2014 AFC Player of the Year and the Matildas are currently ranked 10th in the world and on their way to compete in their 6th FIFA Women's World Cup in Canada in June. Pretty sure the Socceroos sit closer to 100th than they do to 10th. Don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing any of the male sports, I love all my sports, but it's hard to find a valid reason why these women's sports are not being covered to anywhere near the extent of the men's equivalent when the results and the performances are on the board. A sport we're historically excelling and one that I've always followed, even as a Victorian, but one that I've monitored more closely over the recent couple of years has and has become one of a favourite of mine over the last two years or so is rugby, and more specifically rugby sevens. Both the men's and the women's sevens is played all over Australia domestically, but the next level up from that is the national teams. We have a national men's and women's team. Our Australian women's sevens team is ranked second in the world. Emily Cherry, one of the star players, is the current World Rugby, formerly the IRB's, International Women's Player of the Year. Team's in the middle of an international series they have each year between October and May. This year is an Olympic qualifying year, because next year at the Rio 2016 Olympics, Rugby Sevens is debuting. The Australian Rugby Sevens program has a very strong backing, obviously from the ARU, but also from the AOC, and is supported strongly by the AIS. Even in that, sorry, the development and training program has been expanded. The program is now fully professional. All these athletes, the men and the women, are contracted professional players. The average age of the women's squad is 22. They just signed on their last contracted player last week, she's 17, and they are all incredibly good and incredibly elite athletes. But it's even hard in that rugby union state in Sydney, where they're based at the centre of excellence, at Narrabeen, you would find it hard in that heartland of rugby to find any reporting along regular reporting lines of rugby sevens during a competition season. These are just some examples of women's sport that is out there all the time. This is not just occasionally, not just around events, this is all the time. So it can't be about quantity or uh, the content on offer. There's an abundance, and it's certainly not about the quality. We excel. So is it the risk factor? 
Are the media organisations worried about any backlash from advertisers or sponsors? If this is the case, then it is one that the media organisations must address from a, a sustainable business perspective. Because the coverage is coming, it is happening, just more covertly than most of us realise. This is perhaps where we trot out the pop culture catchphrase. If you build it, they will come. If you start publishing it and writing about it and broadcasting it, media organisations may be surprised by what they find the response is. Some statistics, statistics I'm going to throw some numbers at you now. In the mid-1990s, the Australian Sports Commission survey found that 47% of women watched sport on TV. Just five years ago, Bureau of Statistics figures showed that 64% of women participated in sport and recreation and 37% of women actually went to sporting events. Imagine what the figures would be like today in 2015. Mainstream media organisations have to acknowledge and accept this or they will miss the boat. They will miss the potential growth in readership and in fact risk losing the ones they already have. I like to look at this as a bit of an analogy of a house. Media industry is a large house. Women's sport has a lot of trouble getting in the front door while there are guardians of the reigning traditional media standing their post at the front door. But a house has a back door. It also has windows. None of which have been locked or nailed shut because the potential for infiltration has never been considered. So let me tell you, access has been gained. Now one of the several hats that I currently wear, loosely termed by um, the company boss of this particular organisation as the Associate Director of News in Australia, which is very grandiose and means really nothing. We both have a bit of a laugh about it. This company is WSNet, Women's Sports Network, based out of the UK. It's very much a social media and online network based around women's recreation, women's activity and women's sport. Now, WSNet has various arms, one of which is disseminating news, updates, stories, etc., about women's sport around the world through social media, especially Twitter, using various regional specific <coughs> accounts. Ours here is Twing Oz. Some of you might have seen the Twing, I don't know, some of you might have seen the Twing Twitter tag. That's what I, I spend a lot of my time, well, not a lot, a small amount of my time each day, most days, doing. It entails posting current news, stories, results, all about women's sport in Australia via the Twing Tweet Deck. From doing this for the past nine or ten months, I've had my eyes opened to an even, even, I've had my eyes opened even wider to the appalling state of coverage of women's sport in both dedicated online media and of course the online digital media forms out of paper, the newspaper outlets. I'd be lucky to find one substantive story in a day among, let's say, 30 plus online stories that are all about sport. Now, I could go into endless examples of what I find and don't find with regard to daily coverage of women's sport when I'm doing this, but I'm pretty sure I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The point of me telling you about this is what I've also become very aware of is the dedicated digital media forums covering women's sports only. These are what I refer to when I say mainstream media needs to be careful to what extent it ignores the push for more equity in the coverage of women's sport because these small dedicated sites are coming in that back door. The awareness of them and the support for them is growing. To name just a few, and some of you may know, may know some of them, as I've said, WSNet, Women's Sport Network and the Twing Arm, uh, Women in Sport podcast program is done by a British woman out of America 
across the world. She does a weekly radio program podcast. Her third largest audience is in Australia. Locally, we have the Australian Women's Sport and Recreation, AWRA, a lot of you may know, with Leanne Evans as the CEO, Danielle Warby, Sportette, Sporting Sheilas, Trish Anders, the Women's Game, which is the soccer site, uh, both on Twitter and online. They're just a few. And just this week, I've had at least three pop up. Just this week, we've got sportsgirls.com, which is on Twitter, Hera, which is an e-magazine going online in May, based purely on women's sports, women's sports administration, participation of all athletes and activities. Girls Play Footy provides coverage of women's Aussie rules, competitions all across Australia, again, based in the social media forum. Bounce Down and Beyond is a Facebook page that is also dedicated to women's football, Australian rules football, and is this year commemorating 100 years of football, women's football in Australia. So my message here tonight is, as frustrating as it is every day to pick up a newspaper and not see any women's sports coverage, or to be fair, very little, all is not lost. With the meteoric growth of digital and social media and the sheer permeating nature of the modern form of communication, media content is accessible to all and is able to be disseminated by many, and it is enabling the exposure of women's sport. So the bastions of traditional media cannot stop it, and the irony here is that they might just miss the boat, as I said, in the bigger and broader world of sport coverage and sport media, and they'll be playing, playing catch-up in the long run. Because women's sport is out there, it's growing in popularity both in participation levels and in spectator interest. It's almost like guerrilla warfare as a necessity. There will always be continuing attempts to give women's sport more exposure through traditional media, but there is also now an ongoing and growing strategic operation, if you like, which is still getting the stories and the message about women's sport out there. You just have to look a little bit harder for them at the moment. This point in time, I think the question should not therefore but should be not only why aren't media companies taking a risk on women's sport, but rather are they taking a risk by not covering women's sport and toying with the possibility of becoming redundant themselves as the main source of sports reporting and coverage? Saying, and I think, um, yeah, there needs to. Some of these media organisations do need to look out because I think the tidal wave might be coming, but we'll see. But look, I've chosen to talk about uh, the relationship between female participation and media coverage of women's sport, which is uh, something that I've actually been uh, interested in for. Whoops, <laughs> so I can't. How does this work? I'm used to using a Mac, oh, being thrown out by the PC. Uh, yeah, something that I've been interested in for a very long time. Does anyone know who that is? She's broken records. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to her. If uh, there was more women's sport on, in the media, you'd probably know who she was, but we don't. So why this topic? Well, I sort of came to this topic for a number of reasons. Um, I'm the mother of a daughter and a son, both of whom have been very sporty. And I kind of got to thinking about the fact that my daughter had so many fewer opportunities to pursue a career in sport. I mean, talking about a, a paying career in sport than my son did. Um, and I thought, well, that's really not fair. 
um, you know, my son could be a professional athlete. People tell him that all the time. Well, you could be this, you could be that, you could be whatever. They never, ever, ever said that to my, my daughter who was equally um, talented in sport. We also used to sit and watch telly together, my daughter and I, and she used to say to me as a young girl, why, why isn't there any women's sport on TV? You know, why can't I watch this? Why can't I watch that? And go, it's just the way it is. Going back to my own experience as um, a girl, I, I sort of get quite emotional about this in a way because I was a sports-crazed young girl and I was growing up in the sort of 60s and 70s and all I could see all around me was all these boys and men playing sport and I used to avidly watch World of Sport every week. I used to consume sport, you know, voraciously. Um, to the point where I actually wanted to be a boy because I thought, you know, that would be the only way that I could be a participant in this. And even when I was in high school, I did a survey which went for a month where I scoured all of the, the uh, TV or the news coverage. It was actually newspaper coverage I did to look for women's sport. And, uh, well, I think you can all guess <laughs> what the results were. There was virtually none. So I was sort of thinking about, well, what's... You know, what's the situation now? Well, it has improved a lot and it is improving a lot, but there's still a long way to go. And I stopped sport at the age of 17. My daughter stopped sport. My son's still going, so hopefully, you know, I don't know where he'll end up. But um, I started thinking about, well, how does all of this affect female participation? So I guess what I'd like to talk about first is, well, why, why does it matter if there's not so much women's sport on the traditional media? Well, it matters because um, sport matters, really. You know, we all know the benefits. There's the health benefits, you know, especially with things like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, all of those things. There's brilliant mental health benefits, all of those social benefits, which we know are so valuable. And sport's also really valuable in promoting inclusion and social cohesion. For example, my son, he plays a basketball club with people of so many different backgrounds and it's a wonderful experience for all of them to be in this sort of melting pot together and getting to know each other. So, sport matters. But it seems that all of these benefits... I mean, if you just judge the value of sport, looking at what's in the news, newspapers on television and radio, you think, well, maybe it only matters to men, because there aren't many women there, are there? So let's have a look at some stats. This is from, I think, the same report that Jill was talking about before. 63% of children aged 5 to 14 participate in sport outside of school hours. A lot more boys do than girls, and that's consistently the same across all levels. And so you have that starting point where there are lots of um, lots more boys playing sport. And then you have dropout rates. And uh, this is from a UK study um, by the Women's Sport and Fitness Foundation. Now, it's the same thing here. Teenage girls drop out at a much faster rate than boys in sport. In this study, there were three reasons put forward, peer group, social, societal values, enjoyment, other priorities, and, and confidence. So some of these peer group reasons. It's not feminine to play sport, is it? You know, 
Um, if you go down to the third one, which was numbered one to th number three, I think switching PowerPoints does weird things. Um, most parents promote boys' sport as a boys' activity and they get more recognition. And that's certainly what I've seen between my son and my daughter. And then there's the one in the middle, there isn't enough women's sport in the press or on TV, so <coughs> girls don't see sport as a normal activity for women. So I think the three are all very much tied in together. So let's have a look at the broadcast analysis of the coverage of women's sport. And I had no idea it was actually this bad. This has uh, been done by the Australian <coughs> Sports Commission. And look at those figures, 5%, 7%, 3%, 4% coverage of women's sport. And it really hasn't improved very much, has it? And I don't know that it's actually improved all that much since I was young. And the other thing, of course, we're talking about tonight is um, female journalists, sports journalists. And this is from uh, the Associated Press Sports Editor's Report Card. This is from the US. And it's looking at the percentages of men in key positions uh, covering sport in newsrooms in, 20, I think, 2010 and 2012. 94% of sports editors, men. Assistant sport editors, 90%, so on and so on. So what sort of a message is that sending? What's it telling our girls? That sport's a game for men and boys, not women and girls. It's not a valid career option for women. That what women achieve in sport... It doesn't matter as much as men. Then, of course, men know a lot about sport, but women really don't. And then there's the other part of that where men are quite um, competent to cover women's sport, but if you have women covering men's sport, well, oh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's getting better, but there is still that, that problem. Um, and women in sport are the other. You know, you've got basketball, you've got women's basketball. You've got football, women's football. Cricket, women's cricket so on and so forth. That really, really annoys me. And it goes beyond sport. It tells us a lot, all of this stuff, about the lower status of women in society. It perpetuates stereotypes and it prevents women from being equal participants in all aspects of modern society. I thought we'd moved on a bit further than that. So what are the girls missing out on? They're missing out on role models, sports people and reporters, both. You know, as I said before, it stops girls and women from seeing sport as normal and a fun part of their lives. Uh, they're missing out on that public affirmation of female sporting talent and achievement. They have very few opportunities to make a career out of sport. Even our top netballers, you know, they don't really... You know, they make a pittance. Let's be, you know, put it frankly, they do for the hours of training that they put in. <coughs> And, of course, the girls miss out on the health and community and fitness benefits if they drop out of sport because they're not being encouraged by the media, at least, to stay in it. What are the blokes missing out on? Well, they're missing out on fantastic female role models that they can learn from. They're missing out on seeing women as equals, women's sport as normal. They're, they're missing out on enjoying more choice and diversity in sport. I think it was Tracy Holmes who said um, the fact that, you know, it might be the same sport that they're playing, but it's a different game. You know, it's the same sport but played differently. And that's part of the reason why I love women's basketball, actually. I've read things where men have said, oh, it's so boring, they don't even slam dunk, you know. Um, I actually like the fact 
much that they don't slam dunk and they play the game differently. It makes it really interesting. Some of them do slam dunk, mind you. And I think having not so many female journos means that a lot of insightful questions and different angles that um, might be asked don't get asked. Now, I don't know. I, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not taking anything away from these guys because they all know their sport and they're great commentators, but that's not my Melbourne home of sport. It's so not. And I would really, really like to see that change. Which brings us sort of, if we segue through to representation of women in sport, which is, um, well, really as sex objects or second-class citizens. Give us a twirl. I mean, you'd all remember that, I'm sure. This is the sort of stuff that women come up against, women sports people, all the time. You know, number seven in the world. Oh, how did your training go? Tell us about your preparation. Oh, give us a twirl and show us your dress, darling. Go away. You remember this one? The, the, uh, <laughs> the Opals get to play to go to the Olympics and they fly um, economy while the men fly business. All right, they're saying maybe the men were taller on average, so they get to go and visit. Well, I'm sorry, but some of these tall women basketballers are much taller than the short, some of the shorter guys. It's just, yeah, ridiculous. Then this. I, you know, sportswoman of the year, a couple of blokes thinking it would be hilarious to name... Black Caviar Sportswoman of the Year in in front of Sally Pearson. What, what what part of that is funny? I just there's no part of that that's funny in my opinion. However, as Jill said, there are some good things on the horizon. I was stoked when I saw this. I was so happy. I was literally jumping up and down, screaming because you know, and it shouldn't be so amazing that women are going to get paid the same amount of money. And I really, really love... Look at that picture. It's just beautiful. She's standing there. She's strong. She's confident. She's athletic. She's not doing a twirl or anything like that. So, you know, things are getting a little bit better. So what do we do to make them better? Jill was talking about all the fantastic social media stuff that's going on. I just reckon you just keep fighting until you win the game, basically. Because really, who wouldn't want to see this on their screens? The wonderful Monia Gerard, who's retired now. Who wouldn't want to see that? And uh, most of all, from my point of view, who wouldn't want to see that? <laughs> and if, in case you don't know, that's Eleanor Patterson, who comes from Lee and Gather, a very small country town here in um, Victoria who won the Commonwealth Games high jump at the age of 19 and is being touted as the, the best up-and-coming high jump talent for the last 30 years. And, uh, yeah, she's just amazing. And she is, speaking of role models, my son does high jump and he thinks that she is amazing. So it goes back to what men are missing out on by not having these female um, role models in sport. And that's it from me. an awesome photo isn't it <laughs> and uh, I'm not I know it was it was a little bit uh, 
it looks like I'm very, very happy with, uh, with life at the moment. Um, so what I'm going to talk about today is where, I guess, race and gender sort of intersect um, with footy and football. And the reason that I chose to look at these two sports in particular <coughs> is that I think there's a little bit of a difference in the way ethnicity and race and gender um, are sort of treated in, in these two. So obviously just some um, definitions. Uh, when I say footy, we're from Melbourne, so that means Aussie rules. I know it's, uh, I did my PhD in Sydney. So footy refers to something different over there. Um, and you can see the bottom one, obviously, you know, football and soccer, interchangeable. Um, it's known as soccer in this country as it is in the US. Right? And I'm not one of those people who are very precious about it. Some people say soccer, some people say football. Um, obviously, I prefer football, but that's just the way it's called in this country. And if you're taking a look at that top picture, it is incredibly staged. Okay? No one who's about to get tackled smiles like that. <laughs> and the bottom picture is not staged. Okay, so there was a, a coach of Arsenal a couple of decades ago who said something like, always play with a smile on your face. It's a beautiful game. It's impossible to play with a smile on your face. Nobody looks good playing. So, um, so the, I guess the background to this came from not just the discussion that we were all having in terms of the little, um, a little rant against the, the really sort of one-sided way um, that uh, you know, women's sport is portrayed in, in the media in this country. Uh, the background to this, I guess, is sport being something that is absolutely crucial in public life, as um, Heather just mentioned. And this is something very interesting from some of our colleagues over at La Trobe uh, University. And they put out a, a little bit of research that found that um, there are 760 accredited media for the AFL. 760. That was in 2011. <laughs> but in um, federal parliament in the press gallery in Canberra, there's uh, fewer than a quarter that number. So what does that tell you about the role that sport plays in Australian life? Or as, as uh, Laurie Zion and his colleagues said, is football really so important? The simple answer is yes, absolutely. Um, there's been a whole heap of research about how sport provides meaning and belonging. And again, we heard from both of our previous speakers about how much it contributes uh, in terms of emotional health, uh, well, uh, you know, in terms of um, social health, in terms of mental health, etc. Um, and before, when you're looking at this and thinking, um, is this woman nuts? She plays both football and footy. I can tell you what my podiatrist said when I saw her last week. The first thing she said when I took off my shoes was, Nasha, what have you been doing to your feet? You know? And I said, um, well, that's what I've been doing to my feet. Um, so it is, you know, there's, it, it plays a huge role in public life, but also in terms of uh, race and ethnicity, sport is obviously seen as a metaphor for, for war. Um, you know, there's also cultural and religious identity incorporated into this. Now, we heard from, um, uh, from Jill about the dearth of female uh, coverage, of, of coverage of female sports. And that has another layer of complexity when you think that there's also another segment um, of, of sport that has a lack of, of coverage, and that is, it's not that... I'm, I'm really trying to sort of unpack that notion of why it is that, you know, women's sport has so, such little coverage. Is it that the media hates women, right? Is it that the media hates uh, female athletes? Um, or is it that there are certain very narrowly defined um, means of defining, like, you know, what matters in terms of sport in this country? Because we know that sport is not just sport 
right? Just that statistic alone, right? We know that sport isn't just, um, you know, a game. Um, it's also almost a way to define, I guess, you know, who's Australian, right? to define identity. Um, and so when you take a look at the different layers of, of gender and race um, into that, it becomes uh, quite interesting. So it's sp uh, f focusing specifically on um, diaspora or minority communities, which is what some of the research that um, I've done um, takes a look at. Um, so basically the, they found that the way to sort of go around it Sport is often seen as a yardstick to measure uh, integration. Right? I hate that word. I really dislike the word integration. But for a lack of a better word, sport's often used as a way to, to measure how well, um, how accepted a particular group um, of people is. And so what they found in minority communities, say in the UK, what they found is that whether or not a young woman participates in sport is often determined by family influences. And we're seeing that here in, uh, in Australia as well. There's one particular program that I work with which I'm really, really proud of. And um, I, I work in conjunction with uh, the North Melbourne Football Club, the Kangaroos. And what they've done is put together a space for young women to um, basically to be themselves. They've got homework support. They've got, this program has won awards. Right? And it's, it's recognised for its contribution to the area. Um, we all know that North is the only AFL club, I think, that doesn't actually have um, a licensed gaming venue, uh, that doesn't you know, get, get money from that particular source. And instead, it invests in its community. It's situated right near you know, the public housing flats in Flemington. And so what we're seeing in that program that I was um, running and I'm and continuing to run this year, uh, what we're seeing in that program is a little bit of a power struggle among some of these communities. Because these communities come from the Horn of Africa. So they're from Eritrea, from Somalia, from Sudan. And the first generation of kids that grew up here, they're coming of age. They're all about 16, 17, 18. And there's this power struggle that even outsiders have noticed. And the power struggle involves this. The women want to go over to the club because North has said, we'll give you these facilities. Right? You can come watch a match with us. You can play, use the indoor basketball court. Um, and we've got homework support. And traditionally, they've gone through the blokes. Right? So they've gone through the, 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 the girls' fathers and the girls' uh, brothers. And the girls' fathers and the brothers have said, okay, they want to play. But what's happening with this generation that's coming of age, they've noticed that the girls are actually saying, you're not going to talk to my brother anymore. You're going to talk to me. Right? So the, this generation that has grown up has gone and said, well, the club's going to offer us these facilities. We're going to use them. And there's this really, really fascinating power struggle uh, that's happening there. But this is the sort of story, of course, that no one in the media is going to cover. Right? It's not very sexy to, to think of a particular group of women from an ethnic minority you know, taking a stand and wanting to participate in a program run by an AFL club. Who wants to hear about that? Um, that's, one, uh, sorry, that's one aspect of it. Um, I'll return to footy in a minute. When, Returning to, uh, but talking about football, this is a fellow called Johnny Warren, and he used to be a football player in Sydney. He's um, passed away, but this is his uh, biography. And the reason he called his biography this is because um, football, or aka soccer, is pretty much defined in the Australian imagination as you know, an ethnic sport. It's a sport of migrants. And so he called his book Sheila's Wogs and Poofters because that's how the sport was seen. And notice that in order to denigrate the sport, they used gendered terms. Right? So if you played soccer, you were either weak, you were a woman, you were a Sheila, 
or you were an ethnic, a wog, or you were gay. These are all the terms that they use to denigrate the sport and to say it's, it's not Australian. Right? So that was, his, um, uh, that was his biography. And it sort of defines the, the fact that you know, football and soccer, even after the Asian Cup, and there were some fantastic, fantastic stories coming out of the Asian Cup, um, one of which I'll, I'll mention shortly, um, but it pretty much remains in the Australian media and the, in the Australian public eye as something that's an ethnic sport and that's foreign. And only when it comes to things like the Asian Cup do you get to see coverage of some of these issues where sport goes beyond just the football pitch. So I'm thinking in particular of the stories surrounding the women who are following the Iranian team in the Asian Cup. And part of the media narrative around those women was, wow, the Iranians are really hot. Right? That was the media coverage that was coming out. Wow, Persian guys, Persian girls are really hot. Some of these stories uncovered really interesting reasons as to why the Iranian women dressed up. And, you know, yeah, they are hot, but they were, there, was actually, um, there was actually a feminist imperative behind themselves, you know, behind them, the dressing up. So what would happen was I registered as a photographer, as a freelancer um, for the Asian Cup. Um, and I was, the <laughs> I was the only one of two female photographers right, in, in the group. And all of the other photographers were, of course, male. But what happens is you go along to these games. And remember, these women and their, and their parents, back in Tehran, they would not be allowed to go watch the football. Right? So they were not allowed to. Iran's very, very strange. A woman is not allowed to go and watch football. Many of you may have seen the Jafar Panahi film Offside. Right? So a woman's not allowed to go to the football but you're allowed to play. They've got a very well-ranked um, international <laughs> women's team. So I don't know what the, the rationale is behind that. It's, it's really bizarre. But anyway, so they're not allowed to watch them play. And so when the Iranian team were here in Australia, you had all of these women of Iranian background going along and their mothers saying, this is the first time I've actually seen our football team play. The first time. In fact, the Iranian FA put out that law banning their football players from taking selfies with female fans. <laughs> um, to which, of course, all of the women in Australia said, that's your own fault for sending out really good-looking players, you know, really good players. But the, in terms of what the women were doing, they did themselves up. Right? They made themselves look fantastic. And as I was standing on the pitch with each of the Iranian games, I noticed all of the cameramen, right, whether it was a still camera or whether, whether it was the, the guys from Fox, every time they saw one of those attractive female Iranian fans, what would the camera people do? Zoom the camera in on, on those guys, right? And so a couple of stories came out interviewing the female fans of, of the Iranian team. And they were doing it on purpose. They were doing it on purpose because they knew that those images would be beamed back to Iran. And then it would be beamed back to Iran and then they could see the people back home say, wow, the world hasn't exploded when there are women at the game. And they interviewed um, you know, the men who were attending the matches from the Persian community. And guess what? Exactly the sort of thing that Heather was talking about. The men said, it's much better if the women are at the game. We behave better. <laughs> right? If there are women at the game, we, we actually behave better. And so they were, it was just really interesting that they were relying on their gender right, as a way to actually refute this notion from back home that they went. So these are some of the really cool stories that were coming out of the Asian Cup, but unfortunately, this is the only incident, right? this is the only type of place where you can see that sort of in-depth coverage. Because, you know, most of us right, have worked in the news, and especially in radio, which many, several of us are from, or in TV, we know that the formats are quite tight. Right? We know that it's, it's quite formulaic, and there's not a lot of opportunity to go beyond 
um, you know, just a mere match report. There's not a lot of opportunity to explore these issues. Um, in Sydney recently, I spoke about this uh, for a paper which I submitted to the Australian Journalism Review. And the paper was about how uh, two newspapers in, in Melbourne covered the takeover of uh, what was then called the Melbourne Heart um, by a consortium owned by the royal family of the United Arab Emirates, the same company that owns uh, Manchester City and now New York City FC. So it's called the City uh, Football Group. And so now Hart is called um, Melbourne City. So it's not Melbourne Hart, Melbourne City. But the way that they covered it, it was front page news with the age, portraying it with three you know, happy Hart fans. The Herald Sun took a different approach and decided to portray it as a little bit of a threat. So you can see in the cartoon from the age, maybe you can't read it, but it says, Melbourne Hart's new owners take control with no noticeable changes. Right? And so you can see there with the, with the women you know, purportedly cheering in burkas and the surly uh, shake Know, smiling in the foreground. And it's interesting that they've picked that photo of that particular sheikh. He rarely wears Middle Eastern clothes. He gets around in these really sharp suits. Right? So he's often in, in actually in, in Western gear. But they had to portray the, the sort of the foreign element of it and the effect that this would purportedly have on the female members of um, you know City's fan base. So there is that opportunity to cover issues of gender, race and sport comprehensively, but it's not it, it's with everything else in the media. Right? Only those small sort of um, niche pockets of programming and, and, and publishing allow you that, that chance. In radio, there was a story that I did for um, RN about how the AFL wanted a second team for Sydney because they thought Western Sydney is this growth area. And so they said that, you know, I, th I noticed that it was very interesting. At the time, before the Greater Western Sydney Giants were formed, I noted the way that they were marketing themselves to that community. It was really, really strange. On their website, they had visibly Arab men. They had women in headscarves. They had these girls, uh, some of whom are uh, good friends of mine, who set up this predominantly um, Muslim uh, footy team. And so that was a 50-minute radio doco. So that, had, that went beyond sort of the, the narrow uh, focus of, of broadcast news and it was able to take a look at some of those themes, like about how these women... Um, and even then, there were a lot of issues that I, I thought I could have delved into further. I only mentioned briefly how the girls spoke about how they, they loved playing, but they come from a community where so much is demanded of them. You know, they've got to be the support for their family. They're expected to go to uni. They're expected to work. They're expected to uh, take care of their brothers and, and sisters and cousins. Um, so what this means is that this is just reflecting that wider trend. Like I said, it's really hard to make that argument that the Australian media hates soccer or the Australian media hates women or the Australian media hates women playing soccer. Right? It's, it's really difficult to make that argument. It's just that there are these ingrained, really, really sort of uh, defined narratives and the opportunity to go beyond them uh, doesn't exist uh, as much. I think that's it. Yeah, that's all. Thanks, Alex, and everyone for the opportunity tonight. It's great to be here. Uh, my topic is on footy change rooms, blokey press boxes and the back page girl. Um, basically what I'm going to talk about tonight is I'm sharing my own experiences as a, a young reporter and then going through my career as a sports editor, um, ultimately at the Herald Sun, a sports editor in digital. And I wanted to share the issues that I experienced during my career. 
now I'm teaching at Monash. I teach in, in digital journalism, so my life is, is very much different to what it was back as a, a, a young uni student when I started out. So I actually studied sports science and I grew up in a, a massively football family and my um, brother was recruited to Melbourne Football Club as a teenager and my father was a, a doctor at Hawthorne. So I was totally immersed in this football environment and I absolutely loved it and I wanted to... Um, I wanted to write football, I really enjoyed writing and although I was training to be a sports scientist, uh, I majored in English at university and I decided to uh, write sport while I was at uni and I did a couple of, couple of years at Leader, uh, which was convenient being, being a local paper and <laughs> I couldn't write on football. Um, no one was interested in writing on softball and or netball, so I started writing out on softball, and that was my first round. And that's it was easy for me to get into because no one else was reporting on women's sport at the time. So that was my start, and I created a niche for myself in softball. And that led a couple of years of working at Leader. It led to a job at the Age. So I joined Patrick Smith, who's now a columnist at. The Australian and actually feels very passionate about women's sport and has been critical of the way you know women's sport has been covered over the years and I was actually critical of the coverage at the time and he he was very receptive to my concerns and that's how I got a job at the age because I spoke about the issues with women's sport so I started writing softball but deep down I wanted to write on football because growing up in football you just you learn to love the sport because you're so consumed by it and that's what you see all the time that you just never see the coverage of, of women's sport. But anyway, that was my start. So I wrote netball and softball at the age for a couple of years and then I really wanted to write football and realised that I really couldn't you know, go further in that avenue. So uh, I remember my, my back page, um, my first back page of the age, it was probably about, probably about August 1992 and um, it was a huge picture of a softballer um, in the middle of the broadsheet and then all the other stories around it was uh, football, AFL. So, um, but the, the story ran on a Tuesday and it's very unusual to have a huge photo of um, you know a, a female softballer and for me that was a real breakthrough and you never forget that and it was very very tough to get back pages I had features inside the back pages but not on the very back page so eventually I um, expressed my concerns with the Sunday Herald Sun and I had a full page to write on women's sport. So I was allowed to write on several different sports for women's sport, but that was on the Sunday, it wasn't during the week. So I had huge, huge um, amount of space to work with. So I was able to write on all different sports. I wrote athletics, uh, cycling, swimming, yachting, and I, I really delved into the Olympic sport. So 
that was a really fun era. But the hunger for AFL was still there. I Believe it or not, I majored in AFL at university, so I really wanted to explore that. So then I asked, can I write AFL? And my response was, no, you can't get into the, into the change rooms. You can't get in. And I just thought, that's wrong. You know, I should be able to report. There were other reporters at the time. There were about two at the time. This would have been about 1994. And um, so what happened is I actually went to The Australian, which is like the same company, and I said, I was told I can't get into the change rooms to report AFL. Can you help me report on AFL? And they said... Yes, I actually thought it was funny that I couldn't write an AFL. So they, they gave me a job and I wrote AFL for four years for The Australian, which was, which was fun. But I, at the same time, I was still writing on women's sport. So I still had two specialist areas. And then I had children, I had a family, and it proved difficult to, you know, report at that high level you know, when you're nursing babies. So I returned to Leader and while I raised my children, I, you know, I worked locally, but I, I was reporting on a number of areas. I would, you know, specialise in swimming and didn't do much football at the time, but I was sort of developing skills in other areas of general news. And then um, I'll just, just check my notes. Just bear with me for a sec. Um... Yeah, so um, going back to the football change rooms, it was it was a massive issue. And one one day I was out at Waverley Park, that's where Hawthorne now trained, and it was 1994, Hawthorne were playing the Brisbane Bears, not the Brisbane Lions. It was my first AFL game, and I was actually pushed physically out of the change room. Like I was went to walk in, I had my press pass, which said admit bearer to change rooms, and I was pushed out. So then I spoke to some male journalists and they actually protected me and I was able to go forward and um, going to the change rooms. That was the only time that I was refused admission to a change room. But then I had significant problems out mostly at the Western Oval um, where, where um, the Western Bulldogs train and well, they used to play there. And when I used to go in the change rooms out there, I was told to stand one metre from the wall with my um, face facing the wall. And while the naked guys were walking up and down, uh, so I had to turn and, you know, just hang out at the wall until I could interview the coach. Uh, I had some pretty bad reactions from the players when they saw that I was female and in the change rooms, and they would mock scream, right? There's a girl and scream. And I would get that a few times. So I remember one one day I was at the MCG. It's all been changed now. So I, I um, interviewed John Northey uh, for a Richmond game. And then I came out of his coaching, coaching um, room and I walked through um, a corridor. And on each side of this corridor, they were all naked players, and it was it was tough. Like it was, where do you look? You know, you're a reporter, and you just you look down. I remember I used to um, 
tail in with a Herald Sun reporter and um, I would have my head sort of in his jacket so that no one would ever accuse me of perving, right, because that was an issue. And I would have some old-time officials who would come up to me and criticise me for actually being in the change room. So I found it a very uncomfortable environment. This is the mid-1990s. It's totally changed now. Like, it's improved so much. Uh, girls can go in there and, you know, you don't, you don't see that anymore. Um, in the mid-1990s, I used to report a bit of NBL basketball, the National League, and they were very advanced in managing female journalists and they would have a separate area where you were, um, uh, you were able to interview the coaches and players. But um, the AFL had no... no um, this is before Dimitri came in, so it was probably a little bit unorganised and they had no provision for female journalists back in those days. Now it's improved a lot. So um, then I eventually went into the digital news, so my change room days were over, which was actually quite comfortable, comfortable for me. And um, then returned to the Herald Sun in 2007, and I became a digital sports editor. So, and you know, at one stage, uh, a female reporter went on maternity leave, and I was the only female working on the desk at the Herald Sun on sport. So I found that quite uncomfortable. I was sort of alone. Um, eventually I got promoted to another position in digital, so I actually moved off the sports desk. But, uh, you know, it was, it was hard to, you know, fit in. And, and in a way, um, you do become one of the boys and you learn to cope with it. And I've got some comments about how I cope, cope with that. Um, the lesson I learned while working in sport is you can't fight it, you just make the most of it. So I just enjoyed it because I knew that, you know, my time on the sports desk wouldn't last forever. So, you know, to fit in with the boys, you become one of them, you absorb the tensions, the differences of opinion, and forget about the colourful language and the banter. So I just absorbed everything and I, I didn't really fight it, I just accepted my environment and just valued it and that's the way I cope with it and I just focus on being professional and and doing the best best job possible but also through my experiences at Leader, the Herald Sun and the Age over the years I learned that the best place for women's sport is at community level and the internet is actually solving a lot of problems with women's sports coverage um, however, what we encountered is that there's a cultural issue within women's sports organisations at a very amateur level um, where they don't seek coverage. And so when you ask for them to help you to provide information, it's not forthcoming. So, so that's an issue that we found. Um, the solution, I believe, is to... Um, community newspapers can run sports stars of women's sport, uh, sports stars of women, women athletes, and um, if you if you nominate a female athlete, they have to get in the paper because they're nominated as a sports star, 
and it goes to the front of the paper. It doesn't go down the back. So I believe communities should look at leader newspapers or Fairfax or, you know, the, the magazines as well to get coverage there. I'm particularly looking at print through my experiences, but there are better ways to get it and social media is really the way of the future. And that's pretty much it. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. So from the 1990s through to right now, this week, here's the girl that gets to look at the boys now. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a bit interesting going through the tunnel and looking at the guys. Oh, now it's completely different. You tell them it's yeah. them out of 10. Um, Okay, sorry. <laughs> so, completely different um, experiences, but there is a little bit of overlap. In fact, there's quite a lot of overlap. Um, I can only speak from my experiences, which I haven't been in the industry very long. I graduated from here in 2012, but I spent four years at SEN before that, and I then went to the ABC for a year, and I've been at Fox Sports for just over a year now. Um... I've never been told I can't do something because I'm female. That's never happened. I've been told I can't do things because, um, because of my skill, because I'm short, because um, my voice isn't up to scratch, all those things. I haven't been told that I can't do it because I'm female, though. Um, and it's, the reason for that is because there's been a number of trailblazing women that have come through and have done all the hard yards to make it a lot easier for me and girls my age and our generation to come through and be journalists and not cop the flack that everybody else used to used to get back in the 90s. So people like um, Caroline Wilson is obviously one to look at. Think what you will of Caro, but you know she's she's been at the forefront of it for a long time. Um, and then even more recently, there's people like Lara Pitt, Mel McLaughlin. Um, Yvonne Sampson, even Erin Molan, um, girls like that that, I mean, they've made it so much easier for people like me to come through because they've done it, they've copped it. Um, so I guess I'll speak about my experiences. I started at SEN back in 2009 and out of everywhere I've worked, it's probably, your photo probably sums it up, it's the blokiest culture that I've ever worked in. And, sorry, John, it'll be the blokiest culture that I ever do work in, I'm fairly sure. Um, you, can't, you can't work with a group of footballers that came through in the 80s and not expect it to be a ridiculously blokey culture. My favourite story of all time, and I've heard some really weird stories, um, but my favourite was um, a pretty prominent AFL player from the 80s explaining to me how he'd gotten drunk and pissed his name into the snow and then showed me the photo of it. He was very proud of himself. Um, so that's just a couple of the, the things that you hear um, working in the industry, in, in sport. Um, but like you said, it's about being one of the boys. And if you accept it, then that's how, that's how it is. Um, the other thing with SEN was that at the end of the day, there's, I think that there's one, one full-time female at SEN, and she's not in sport. She reads the news. There's, there's the odd people. I was never full-time. I did some casual work as a producer for four years, and 
I think that in that time there was one girl, there was one girl that had been um, that had been full time, and she was in social media. But look, that said, I I loved working at SEN. It was a great experience, and they it was it was different because they treat you like you're one of them. So in that regard, it was the whole being one of the boys kind of thing. Um, I worked very closely with, with guys like Tim Watson, Andy Marr, Andrew Gaze. I worked, I worked on The Breakfast Show, so I worked really closely with them. And they always made me feel welcome. They were always helpful. Uh, they, were almost like, they were almost like uncles, really. <laughs> it's probably the best way to describe it. Um, and so from that perspective, it was good. Uh, and then I went to the ABC. I got the... The ABC 2013 Sport Female Sport Broadcast Internship. So that's run for seven years. Um, started obviously. I don't know if you watch News 24 at all, but Amanda Shalala was the first um, female intern. So I went into that, um, and that was a completely different culture. That was very very small team. We did. Um, I was in ABC TV Sport, so we were up, up in one of the other buildings in Sydney. I moved to Sydney, that's where the internship was, and it was very nurturing. It was, okay, you know, today, your know, Wednesday's your voice coaching day, this is this, this is this, and then on the weekends you go out and you do the rugby, you do the rugby coverage, which was so enjoyable. I loved it. Uh, talking about uh, change rooms, not a problem. You go in, you interview the guys after the game, um, yeah, there, there wasn't anything that happened back in the 90s. It doesn't happen anymore. It's just not acceptable. Um, so, yeah, so the ABC was a completely different experience. Again, it, um, <laughs> the only problem... Oh, well, a lot of people said that it was reverse sexism. As, as strange as that sounds, a lot, of, a lot of guys that I know have been upset about that internship purely because... And would you believe it? A lot of guys actually apply for the internship, even though it's a women it's a women's internship. And um, a lot of people, like I said, have said to me that it's not fair. How can you how can you only advertise to women? That's not fair. Well, the thing is, the government gave them a provision to do it because there weren't enough women in sport. There weren't enough female broadcasters, so they gave the ABC this um, exception under the constitution where they could advertise for one female a year. At the end of the day, it was only one female, but it was, it was more than what they were getting. And unfortunately, it's more than what they're going to get now because the internship no longer exists. As of... Um, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> as of last year was the last year that they did it. So last year, I was the sixth girl. There was a seventh, another girl after me. So as of once the budget cuts came through... They got rid of ABC TV Sport, and as a consequence, they got rid of the internship. But they also got rid of a lot of women's sport as well. They got um, the ABC were broadcasting the W League. They were broadcasting the WNBL. Um, at the time, we were still broadcasting the hockey, so we were doing the women's and the men's hockey, and so none of that is broadcast anymore, purely because yeah, they. Whoever was in charge decided that the sports that we were broadcasting, which was your regional sport or your state-level state sport and your women's sport, wasn't getting enough ratings. And 
problem was it probably wasn't. The women, the, the women's soccer, as much as we pushed it, their ratings weren't, weren't great. Um, and I think that that's a real shame. Like, I did a... I used to do a radio show, a W League radio show every week. I don't know what the ratings were like, but the, the year after they considered not doing it at all. It's only because it was part of the internship that they did it. Um, so, got your pros and your cons with the ABC as well. Fox has been a completely different experience again. It's probably somewhere more in the middle. They're... You still, you still get your blokey culture, you still get your guys kicking the footy around and, you know, trying to dodge the footy or riding their bikes or whatever's going on. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I think I find that Fox to be quite progressive from a hiring perspective. There's a, I work with a lot of females. I work with a lot of female reporters. In my team, so we've got two producers, two reporters, two junior reporters and a presenter. Out of the seven of us, four of us are women. Four of us are female, which I think is a pretty good, pretty good strike rate, really. Um, the only thing is that maybe in more managerial positions, more so like your executive producers and so on, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you don't get as many women. They're mostly men. Producers are pretty much all men. I don't think we have one female producer at work. But a lot of our reporters, presenters editorial assistants, sorry, junior reporters. There are quite a few women that come through and a lot that they try out. They try out a lot of women. I think that maybe the one criticism of Fox is that, like the back page kind of thing that you were talking about, is that you've got to, you've got to have this particular look to go on to Fox. I don't, I don't think that's true. I, I know that I don't fit that look. I'm not tall and blonde and, you know... That, that stunning kind of look. But, I mean, there's a perception out there, but I can honestly tell you that having spoken to my boss, he says, it, you know, it's non-existent. It doesn't matter that you're short, that you've got dark hair, that, you know, you've got these these kinds of attributes. It, it doesn't matter as long as you do your job properly. That's all I care about, which is what you want to hear. But at the end of the day, there is an element that... And it's a TV thing, it's not a Fox thing. It's completely a TV thing that they they take into consideration how you look and whether or not they do that with the guys is debatable. I mean, they're not going to put somebody on that they don't think should be on television, but at the end of the day, you don't get put under as much scrutiny. And that's got a lot to do with public perception as well. Like, you would have seen things like Natasha Belling's penis... Um, Jacket, uh, Carl Stefanovic with the with the jacket that he wore for however long he wore it didn't get the same kind of media criticism that um, his co-host would have gotten. So I mean, it's all out there. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about, oh, commentary. So that's where we really fall down. Women commentators are pretty much non-existent unless you're commentating a female sport. We all saw what happened with Kelly Underwood. Um, and, I mean, it was backlash from inside, it was backlash from the public, um, working on SEN at the time. I mean, I heard, I heard callers. I was taking phone calls. <laughs> I know exactly what the blokes were thinking. Oh, how can you, how can you commentate on the footy if you've, never, if you've never played, if you don't do this? I was like, well, 
there's a good chance you haven't played either. Let's be perfectly honest. Um, so that's, I think, that's where females in sport really fall down is that commentary element. But Kelly, Kelly still commentates. Kelly com but she commentate, commentates netball. Um, the other thing is, during the tennis, it was interesting to watch <laughs> the female broadcasters at Channel 7 would get on during the tennis. Rachel Finch probably doesn't know a great deal about sport, let's be perfectly honest. <laughs> but she's, she's stunning. So we'll put her on and we'll get, get a bit of colour and whatnot. That's, that's the other thing. So that's like the back page thing you're talking about. Is, um, <laughs> that's another criticism. The only other thing uh, is the, um, the dressing rooms. Like I said, you can go into the dressing rooms, that's fine. The only problem is, and it's a reflection of society, is that you get, you get your flirting and you get your, oh, let's, let's try and kick the female journo with the ball. It still exists. It still exists. But it's not as bad, and the players do talk to you, and you get what you need, and they respect you as a journalist. But at the end of the day, boys are boys, really. <laughs> 20, 20 odd year old boys are going to do those kinds of things. Anyway, so that's been my experiences so far. <laughs> Might change in a few years, but so far that's it. Hello everyone, thank you for your patience. Um, I'm going to be, uh, hopefully, a nice, tight, bright TED talk. Um, well, at least a mini version of it. I'd like to thank Alex for inviting me. It's nice to be back in Building 9, where I did my Masters, so uh, a proud alumni I am. And I think what you've heard from people representing all the universities that we're all committed to uh, good journalism, good teaching, so... That's, uh, that's something, it's not quite the, the competitive world that perhaps sport is. Um, I guess the key foundation principle value that uh, has been expressed, and I found Heather and Julie's stories particularly moving, uh, when Heather was tearing up, I was starting to tear up, because um, I've been studying a lot, I'm doing my PhD in gender, and, uh, and looking at masculinity in particular in male professional sport. And so I'm going to use the term biological sex or sex to differentiate, but if I use gender, it will probably mean the same thing tonight. But there were some really great discussions, which we haven't got time to go into, about our perceptions of maleness or femaleness and when we intersect with a particularly masculine um, world. I might also point out, I was a journo in the late 80s, early 90s, and going into those same change rooms, not particularly comfortable for a heterosexual bloke to meet a bloke who's completely starkers, um, you didn't get booted out, but um, the sort of where to look thing is, uh, is the same for us as well. And you wonder what the bloke on the door would do if he knew that one of the male reporters was gay. Was he going to kick him out as well? But that's for another day. So, now, let's push the right button. So, my uh, deliberately provocative title was uh, The Coverage of Female Athletes Would Improve If There's No Women's Sport. And I hope by the end of it you'll agree with me. No, stop pushing that one. The two computers going here. Um, I first wanted to differentiate between coverage because it's important, I think, to, to make a distinction between news coverage and live coverage um, because they have very different impacts in the commercial viability of a sport. Um, so news coverage, we would, we would all like to see, I think, 
people who, are, who value equality would like to see more uh, women's sport covered. And I think we can get there. I actually think that's about social change. And now that we've got uh, social media, I actually think there is a, a possibility of, of causing that change. However, it's not really going to make a lick of difference about how much professional women get paid. You could, you could be on every page. It'll do great things for role models. And some really great points have been brought up about uh, girls who have no role models. It'll do all those things. But those, those netballers, the Matildas and the Diamonds and whatever, who are getting the kittens, the cricketers, it's not really going to change anything because they're not, there's no way of them commercialising that news coverage. Stop. Uh, so where the money comes in, of course, is the live coverage. So uh, sport makes money out of three places, really. Television rights, ticket sales and sponsorship. And as you've probably uh, read the media rights for male professional sports go for gazillions of dollars and, uh, and pretty much female sport is being subsidised by male sport at the moment. And those media rights, or well, at least the sports that have got good media deals. So this is pretty disheartening, isn't it? That netball has had to pay Channel 10 to televise games. So the, the girls' sport or the female sport that's the most popular in the country um, has to pay. Uh, so Channel 10 you know, did some really good things, put it on live, got the ANZ involved and the Commonwealth Bank various times, uh, and yet it still didn't make commercial sense to keep it going, and that's, that's pretty disheartening. So I think that what we're going to see with the NBN and the convergence of television and internet on our television sets, because I think that's when it'll really break through. It's fine to have IPTV, but no one really watches TV, you know, sitting in, the well, they shouldn't be, sitting alone in their study. Um, when it'll really break through is when IPTV is just another channel on your TV, and it's the same quality, and it's as easy as pushing Channel 9 or Channel 7 or Channel 10. And I think that'll happen soon. And so there's been a lot of talk tonight about the coverage of women's sport, both in news coverage and maybe live coverage, but I think that chicken and egg argument about build it and they will come uh, I don't agree with that because I think soon, and Julie sort of touched on what's happening already in social media, but I think soon you're going to get broadcast quality and niche broadcasting of nearly every sport, women's sport, narrow, uh, minor, men's sport, whatever. Everyone will be able to... Production is getting much cheaper uh, and you'll be, able to, you'll be able to put it up live if you want to. Um, and I think what's going to happen is what happens now is people won't watch it. So that... That, unfortunately, I don't buy the argument, build it and they will come. I do buy the social change in news coverage. I think that can happen. So, I'm not so much putting Eugenie Bouchard up there, although I did choose her because of the twirl. Um, and I was pretty disappointed, actually, in Patrick Smith's, um, who I rate very highly as a, as a commentator and as a writer. Um, but Patrick Smith wrote in The Australian that it drew an inordinate amount of criticism, most of it contrived and unfair. Bouchard is, after all, a Nike advertisement as well as a tennis player. Uh, and I did say on SEN at the time that, given that she plays at least an hour, maybe two hours, every match that she plays, uh, if you are interested in buying a tennis dress, there's a fair chance you've had enough time to see if it's pretty or not. So I'm not sure that we need the twirl. Um, and, the, and, and why the t people, boys and men don't get the twirl? Because they live in a patriarchal society, they learn to be masculine off other men. There's no, there's no uh, circuit breaker yet. Um, 
Bouchard just said, I think she was actually pretty magnanimous, she just said, I don't know, an old guy asking you to twirl, it was funny, but I think it highlighted the patri patriarchal power of men in sport. Jake Niles' article is there because he wrote an article about Amelie Moresmo uh, coaching Andy Murray and applauding it and saying, isn't it good? He also talked about tennis uh, being a, uh, a beacon for other women's sport and, uh, and how successful it had been. Uh, tennis is the only professional global game in which women headed by Australian Open finalists Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova have something approaching the profile, interest and obscene bank accounts of the males. That is true. That is absolutely true. But my contention is that the huge profile and money and sponsorship is a ruse. It's a glittering example of segregation, not integration. In that article, Jake talked about tennis being integrated. I say that it's actually uh, sending us down the wrong path, that tennis does segregation so well that it's blinded us. If we truly want equality of the sexes in sport, then we have to reinvent sport. So equality in sport means men and women being allowed to compete with and against each other, including elite professional sport. And I put a picture of the fastest man on earth there because I've raised this with some professional uh, men's sports friends of mine, and they go, Loudon, you're nuts. You know, who's ever going to beat Usain Bolt? Which woman is ever going to be able to catch him? And it was interesting, I toyed with actually putting uh, the stall gift up, and I'll get to that in a second, but... Uh, this happened when Serena and uh, Serena was 16 at the time. This guy in the middle, uh, Carsten Brush, apologies if I haven't got the uh, pronunciation absolutely correct, uh, was ranked 203 at the time, and the Williams sisters put out a challenge to any man ranked over 200 that they could beat them. He, uh, he boasted that he played golf in the morning, had two beers, had a couple of cigarettes, and then beat Serena 6-1 and Venus 6-2. And... Serena, who's only 16 at the time, said, I didn't know it would be that hard. All this feeds into this idea that sport is constructed in a way that women can never uh, participate equally with men. But I wonder, could the world's best soccer player actually play in the EPL? Like, is it really that far apart? Now, I get that there are some sports where it's hard to get your head around, but even, in, even if we didn't change the rules or anything, I think she could play. But... I think, and why I think the stall gift is an interesting example, is the stall gift, um, equal prize money, again, is a ruse. Equal prize money is not equality. Equal prize money is just, again, reaffirming segregation in sport. What it actually should be is the men and the women competing in the stall gift in the same race. And the stall gift is already, for those who don't know, a handicap race. So the fastest person... Uh, who makes the final is off, well, not always off scratch, but is the furthest back. So it's 120 yards on grass, and the slowest in that field, and in every race and every heat leading up to it, gets a handicap. So the age-old story is that they, they run dead before the stall gift to try and get the odds up, because it's a big betting race as well. But I put this picture up because we already stagger in athletics to suit the perimeter of the, uh, of the track. Well, could we not work out some kind of staggered system so that the men and the women can compete in the same race. So, in a way, we're, I, I say we're, we're arguing the wrong argument. This idea that we need to have more women's coverage, okay, that's one way of looking at equality, but in a way, we've given up. What equality should mean is that we reinvent sport. If we were starting sport again, that's so ingrained that we think that it's innate. 
but it's not innate. It, we constructed sport. It's, it's actually just a social construction. If we were starting today, we wouldn't do it like this. Oh, I hope we wouldn't. And think about if we said to all the Indigenous footballers, you've got to go off and play in your own league. Well, that's basically what we say to women. You can't play where we play. So my starting contention was the coverage of female athletes would improve if there was no women's sport and it would improve if there was no men's sport. It should be just sport. Thank you. I wasn't anticipating you saying that at all. I was expecting something quite different. Um, I know we are on 8 o'clock and I know two people have just run off the trains, but I just wondered if we had any quick questions um, for anyone on the panel or you want to just come and mob them afterwards or we'll just go to the pub. Um, <laughs> or find a change room or something. Um, <laughs> Is there anyone got a question? I can see something at the back. Yes. Yes, I've got a question for Heather. Is it? Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was wondering if you've seen there's an ad that the UK government put out about women's participation in yeah, sport, yeah. and that like run like a girl and sweat like oh, a girl. Oh, it's fantastic. And have you seen the the <coughs> new netball ad yeah. with um, I've forgotten the player's name now at the end? Who's got like black eyes? Yeah. And that's caused so much discussion because we're only used to, you know, you see a woman with a black eye and you immediately think you're on domestic violence or something, um, where it's quite normal to see beaten, battered, battered bruised footballers or whatever. You see a woman and it's really confronting. I love that ad, I think it's brilliant. Um, but. Oh, the, the run like a girl, it's, it's brilliant, yeah, I really admire what they're trying to do there, just to increase participation of um, women, because being self-conscious about uh, body image plays such a massive part um, in girls' decision too, about whether they continue to play sport or not, and I think, you know, that the whole thing with, you know, tennis players being asked to tour or whatever, that, that feeds into, into that as well. Else? I think we were talking to a, um, a group of converted players, really. I think they are all here because they do, <laughs> they do already believe that, <laughs> that there is a problem and that, that they're all committed to fixing it. So, look, I will, I guess. Uh, if the change is going to come, where do you think it's going to come in terms of increased representation? I think it's going to come, as I was saying, through, and I think. David was alluding to at the end there, through social media. It's coming through um, boutique and small elements of what is now, what we all understand, what we can all access as media in the modern world. That's how it's going to emerge. Like I say, I'm, I'm really surprised over the last nine months how much women's sport is actually out there in terms of information and coverage, news coverage, player coverage, stories, everything. It's just not on the back page of our commonly understood traditional media sources, which is the newspapers or main online streams or the main TV channels, it's out there and there's a lot of it. It's just in all these boutique areas, you just have to go looking for it and know where to look. But there is coverage of women's sport out there. So I think it's going to come through, as a lot of other things are changing now, through the change in the way we read media, through the way we access media, especially social media. That's where it's going to come from. There are also those stats too about um, if you play a sport yourself, you're so much more likely to watch it um, as as an adult. So if we can, you know, boost participation, maybe we'll boost the audiences 
as well. It still doesn't fix though, that problem of professionalism and women being able to make a buck in no. other sport though, does it? No. And I think if that was true, then netball wouldn't be paying Channel 10. Mm. No, that's right. Because yeah. that is a huge participation sport. I would also debate um, one of David's points where about equality. I don't think it's actually about equality, I think it's about equity. I'm quite happy watching men play basketball. I'm quite happy watching women play basketball. My daughter played basketball for the last 15 years to a fairly high level. They're very different games. They play differently and it's actually enjoyable watching the two different styles of game. I don't expect men and women basketball to play with each other. I like watching both. I think the issue we've raised here is that why can't I access or watch women basketball as play or matches being played to the same degree, with the same accessibility and the same amount, be it on TV, be it reported in papers, wherever, as I can with the men's basketball. Same with the soccer, with, with rugby, with football, with anything. Why can't we say, I think it's about equity, I don't think it's necessarily about equality. We're not trying to pair everyone off so that everyone is homogeneously the same. I think it's just about giving the women just as much airtime, screen time, exposure as it is men. They're different sports and that's the way it should be. People play differently. I have a reply. Yes, so, in my, <laughs> so in my presentation I said that technology will give you that equality in yep. coverage. What I'm saying is there will no longer be soon. You'll be able to have as much sport as you want. Mm. There will be no way that women's sport can't be live in HD. Yep. So, that, so the barrier to being able to view it will have disappeared. Mm. But I don't think there will be a commercial gain from that. I no. think no one will watch it. No. So the or only, not, well, very few will watch it. Yeah, so the gain from that will be the exposure element, like we say, not necessarily the commercial element. Because interestingly, an extension of what I was saying about this groundswell of social access, a lot of the sport, especially if you access it, a lot of the women's sport especially, but even some of the non-mainstream sport, I'm now finding a lot of the organisations like World Rugby, that used to be formerly the IRB, They've got you know international series on both men's and women's. The men's is now covered by Fox completely in terms of when they have a world series on. The women's is covered for the last three hours of the second day of the competition, so you actually get the finals. If you want to watch the women's rugby sevens from anywhere in the world when there is an international competition on during their world series, you watch it on worldrugby.org. Everybody streams, even locally. If you have domestic competitions in football, in rugby, around Australia, whatever. There are small TV production units now. Everybody streams. All the major organisations stream their sport. So last weekend, Women's Rugby, Women's Rugby Sevens was on the international series from uh, where were they? Atlanta. I was awake at three in the morning with my laptop open, sitting up in bed, watching a perfectly decent quality of the Australian girls play rugby. And then again at five, and then again at eight. Monday morning on day two, I was able to go and turn my TV on so the Fox showed me the final. But you knew it was on and you sorted out. It's, if you don't it's all promotion. It's things, depending on if you're you... not going to know that it's no. on. And, and that's where the exposure comes out. But it's promoted by the sports, by the website. So if you follow a particular sport, you will gen and this is where social media comes in, the promotion is there, you will generally access it. Same with, uh, well, not so much tennis, but various other sports as well. But I mean, I find rugby is a good example of that. But a lot of them, like I say, I'm finding, uh, they're all streaming. And I'm finding that from a lot of the people I'm accessing to do with women's sport, around the world, internationally, they're all talking about, they stream. They all stream. This is where you'll find it. This is what they're promoting on Twitter, or on Facebook, on social media. This is the link you go to for the streaming of this particular sport. That's how they're all getting out. So you're right, and that, that's where it's all going. We're all accessing it through streaming. So the equality argument is about that professional women can't earn a million bucks playing sport in Australia. So yeah, we have to find a model that makes that fair. Yeah. Now, I propose one model, which I know is ridiculously radical, yeah. but I put it out there to yeah. show 
how stupid the current system is in a yeah. way. Now we have the current system, it's embedded, it's ingrained, it's going to take a lot to change it. But, yeah. but if you are a top female sportsman in this country, sports person, um, you earn a few hundred thousand dollars if you're lucky, maybe less than that, and you know the cricketers are earning seven or eight million. Yeah. So, so my argument is that you can have all the coverage you want, but that's not going to change how much they're paid unless the money is pooled and then they are equally divvied up yeah. regardless of how much coverage they get, which would be a nice way to go. Yeah. You mentioned the cricketers, and I was really interested uh, when I was reading stuff for tonight to read that often it, the cricketers' wives get paid more than elite Australian yeah. athletes yeah. and female athletes. State female cricketers still pay to travel to mm. play yeah. Sheffield Shield. Yeah. Cricketers' wives for being... Wags.
that's the general premise on why they're doing it. It doesn't make the cricket any less interesting. It doesn't make it any less watchable. It's just a fact of life that that's what they do to try and get the same end result with the number of sixes or the excitement around the game. It's, it's the same with athletics. So, and I'm a massive athletics fan and have been forever. What I love about it is, yes, I love watching people run fast. I love watching people throw things a long way. But I love watching the tactics employed in the races. I love watching, you know, in field events how people walk around and deal with each other and psych each other out and do all that. You know, it's the whole, the spectacle of the whole thing. It's not just necessarily about, um, you know, watching someone who can run the fastest. The fastest woman is just as interesting to me as the fastest man. Which is uh, similar. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with, with part of your observation, John, but it doesn't apply to a lot of sports, like athletics. How does it apply to soccer? That's more about watching which team has the best strategy, and it's, it's incredibly, incredibly intellectual. Like, just similarly to, to NFL, I guess, to, to American sport, which is um, American football, that people don't realise is actually has a huge level of strategy in it, and it's... Um, so something like soccer, which is a like high-scoring game, you don't necessarily watch it to see, um, you know, who runs the fastest or who might score the most. It's more how are you going to get away with this formation? How is that going to be, you know, a more defensive or a more attacking type of play? So um, it might hold true for some sports, just maybe not for others. I think golf is, is a good example of a sport that men and women um, both play and um, both play very well and the skills are almost on par, fun fun, except for the <laughs> except for the long hitting. Um, but clearly the men are far and above paid more than the women. Um, I had an idea when you were talking about your combined sport, that that would be one sport where even if women were playing off the women's team, you could still have major events with men competing against women in the same time. They did though, remember? They had Annika Sorensen. Sorensen. Playing, she played the men's. This is years ago. Do you remember? Yeah. And, 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 and unfortunately, these are stunts. You know that. Yeah, the stunts. Not. She she did it for a little while though. The Victorian Open is now played like the tennis, where the women and the men play on the same course at the same time. So they've gone like the like the tennis has and tried to um, have both sexes playing. I the next step. I know that's a great step because what they could do then is divide the TV money and the coverage. And, have, and you know it would all be one tournament like it is at the tennis or the major major tennis tournaments, and then the next step would be actually playing the same comp. I mean, we forget about equestrian. You know, you go you look at equestrian at the Olympics, and the, the female and male riders are all riding over the same yeah. jumps. So yeah. it can be done. But do they compete against each other? There's only yeah, one do. medal awarded oh, right. to yeah. the best rider. That's it. They do, and I would argue cycling to some extent would be the same. Um, oh, I think cycling again is a sport where the men have a have an, endu an endurance and a strength, but that again can be catered for yep. by somebody mathematically. Work I mean, we do it with horse weight. Somebody yep. is smart enough to work out handicaps, so surely some mathematician can work out, you know, what it is and look at all the performances and anyway. Anyway, on that note, we are well past um, the bell, um, so we should say thank you very much um, to the panel and thank you for all attending tonight. We um, really appreciate you taking the time to come and listen to to us and to everything. I have learned so much from each one of, of, of your statements tonight. So thank you so much. I feel privileged to be here. Thank you. Thank you.